Wow, what great singing this morning. I love the set that we sing. Those songs are such rich theological songs that remind us of the gospel and the greatness of our God. And he is indeed great. So grab your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're stepping out of our series in Luke for a just a specific day uh, today as we uh, celebrate or commemorate uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, just a couple years ago, on June 21st of 2020, I stood right here in this pulpit and I began a six-part sermon series that we called Faith and Culture. You see, at that time, uh, our nation was embroiled in utter chaos. The previous four months had been just a mess in um, the news and, and just a whirlwind of one bad report after another. It all began in the early part of that year with a hotly debated uh, impeachment trial that was taking place in D.C. In the middle of those impeachment hearings, we began to hear uh, news coming out of Wuhan, China, of this coronavirus. And most of us had never heard of coronavirus at that point, unless you're in the medical field. And so we were beginning to hear words and phrases and terminology that we were not accustomed to. But we began to hear this bad news of this contagious strain uh, beginning to spread all throughout China. And then ultimately, it touched every place on the planet. And so we watched as the numbers of deaths being reported skyrocketed. We saw countries and economies beginning to shut down, and fear was literally sweeping across the globe. Health professionals were coming out every day and giving us updates on the spread and what was happening, which populations or demographics were being uh, targeted, or maybe not targeted, but being affected differently by it. And they were telling us how we can prevent this. And all of these things were taking place. You surely remember that wonderful season of our lives. Just as things began to seem like it was getting back to normal, that curve was flattening, that was a phrase that was being used back then, and we seemed like the daylight was on the horizon. In the midst of that hope, another tragedy hit. A man by the name of George Floyd, an African-American man, was killed by in the custody of a Minneapolis police officer, a white Minneapolis police officer's custody. So because of that, protests began to uh, erupt, not just in Minneapolis, but around the country. We saw violent rioting, we saw looting, we saw on our news feeds buildings burning, monuments toppling, and funerals happening. Some dark, dark days that we were walking through back in 2020. Unfortunately, that darkness never really finalized it never finished it really just kind of took on a new persona and a couple years later amidst all the of new controversy this u.s supreme court handed down a monumental decision in the dobbs versus jackson women's health organization case there in mississippi the possible results of their decision was leaked months months before but on june 24th of 2022 the high court in a 6-3 decision, upheld the Mississippi law and subsequently overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. They concluded that the Constitution did not protect the right to an abortion. And so that court's decision pushed the issue of abortion back to the 50 states. As we look over the landscape of our nation, we can see that there is growing frustration and growing unrest amongst the people. 
You see, we are a divided nation. We are divided people. This division is evident everywhere we look. We're divided politically. This is a, an election year, and so that's easy to see the divide that is here in our midst politically. But we're divided ethnically. We're divided morally. We are divided spiritually. Now, I would argue and make the case that that is what undergirds all of the other divisions. See, we are right now in the fight for the soul of America. I said that in 2020. I reiterate that today in 2024. We are trying to figure out who we are. We're trying to figure out what we will become. And whoever we are, we are arguing and fighting and lobbying for what we believe America should be and what America must be. And many times what I see amongst Christians is that we would prefer to not be in the fight. We would prefer to take on the passive role. We would prefer to kind of sit on the sidelines and watch why others argue and why others engage in things. And we would like to just set, set it out. But here's what we cannot do as Christians. We cannot set out. We must be engaged. We must be in the fight. We have a role that we must play. You say, how is that so? We're Christians. We're not to fight. And I would say, yes, we're not to fight, but we're to be in this fight. See, Jesus has called us and commanded us to be salt and light. We're to be those things in this dark world. We're to bring flavor and to be a preserving presence, presence in a decadent place. We're to shed light where there's darkness. This is our biblical and this is our gospel mandate. And yet the church is having a hard time understanding the times in which we live and much less being able to speak to those issues in which we are faced today. The Dobbs decision issued a major defeat to the pro-abortion movement. And, and many of us in this room, hopefully all of us in this room, would celebrate that decision and say that is exactly the right ruling. We want to stand against abortion. We want to stand against the culture of death. We want to stand for life. But we don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do. And sometimes I think we, we're blinded by the fact that we won one case and so we may believe that the war is over and yet it's not over that was just one little battle the war continues the war for the soul of america continues and so this movement of abortion and everything that's involved in that this movement its culture of death that we see here cloaks what's going on in the language of rights and it cloaks it in the language of freedom of choice and yet the inevitable outcome of the worldview behind this movement leads to abortion on, the, on demand. It leads to abortion at any point during the pregnancy. And even our previous governor would say it doesn't stop there. It can even happen shortly after birth. It's all about choice. It's all about reproductive health. It's all about the decision of the mom or the parent. I would say that this worldview also leads to a redefining of sexuality and a Redefining of gender. You see, more and more people today are beginning to see that their biological gender is more of a mistake than anything else. It's something that needs to be corrected. This worldview ultimately, I believe, leads to a devaluing of life across the board and definitely a devaluing of life when it comes to those who have handicaps and those who are aging. Maybe you hear that this morning, you think, no way, we'll never get to that point. That's exactly what we will get to if we continue to allow the culture of death to be mainstream and influence the people of this world and the people of our nation. It will go to those who are handicapped and aging, and they will be the ones that we must eliminate. 
So, with that wonderful news this morning and that wonderful picture of where we are as a culture, here's a question that's before us. What are we to do as Christians according to the Bible? How do we, as those who would believe the Bible, how do we engage in this fight? How do we speak to these issues? How do we step in and respond? These questions demand that we possess a correct perspective of what is happening in our culture today and what the Bible says about human life. And so today, we are observing what we call a Southern Baptist and what many other people would call as the Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day that we set aside each and every January, the third Sunday of each January. We put it on our calendar and we talk to these issues. We speak to these issues. Even in our small group lesson today, the small group I'm in, the curriculum we're using, it spoke to the injustice side of things that happens in our culture. And so we focus on this issue. This Sunday marks our 40th annual Sanctity of Life Sunday as Southern Baptists. And so we do this because our call as believers is to love our neighbors and, and our belief that every person is created in the image of God that would compel us to not just believe in life, but seek to live for life, to make a difference, to champion the cause of the pro-life agenda. And so today I want to remind us that human life is sanctified, that human life is set apart, that human life is important because it bears God's image. Therefore, it has intrinsic value. And so today, it doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, what your last name is, how much money you have in the bank, your educational status, anything that you would want to put in there as a descriptive of you, none of that matters. None of that actually gives you worth. You have worth today because God created you for himself. Intrinsic value. Look with me in Psalm 139 this morning. And let's read what King David has to say about life. Let's begin, in re begin reading in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. King David wrote this psalm. King David was an incredible man. He was an incredible, uh, godly man. He loved the Lord. The Bible speaks of him having a heart for God, a man after God's own heart. And so he penned these words. He wrote this psalm. He is the king of Israel at this point, and he was not the king of Israel initially. He was the anointed king of Israel, but he had to run from King Saul for a while until Saul was killed in battle, and Jonathan, his son, was killed in battle. And then David spent seven years in a town called Hebron. He was the king of Judah until the other tribes came and anointed him and affirmed him, installed him as the king of Israel. And so here's King David, who has united the nation of Israel. He has defeated all of its foes. He has put its internal affairs in order. And now he has settled down to be the shepherd king of its people. And as he reflects over all that God has done in him and all that God has done through him, he begins to understand that while I'm building a house for myself and the kingdom is at rest, the house of God has no permanent place. 
He looks out at the tabernacle, which is the tent that they've been carrying around for centuries as they worship Yahweh, and he realizes God, the Almighty God, who's defeated all of these nations, has no permanent dwelling for himself. And so in his heart, he determined to build a temple, to build a house to the glory of God Almighty. He shares this desire with the prophet Nathan, who took it before the Lord, and the Lord sends him back with a reply, simply saying, you're not the man to build my house. Your son will do that. But David, I'm going to build your house. David, I'm going to build your dynasty. 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 lay that out for us. And so David hears this, and he's overwhelmed by God's grace and God's generosity and God's blessing upon him, his favor there. And so I believe as he hears this promise ringing out, his soul wells up, wells up over and overflows. He's overwhelmed by God's gracious thoughts toward him. So that night, I'm sure he went home, and rather than going to bed as usual, David cannot sleep because of God's goodness. And so he takes his pen out and he begins to pen this great hymn. David sings about God's omniscience. First six verses, we see this. See, God knew his thoughts. God knew his words. God knew his ways. Everything about David and David's life, God knew. God also knew where he was. And so David sang about his presence, his omnipresence. No matter where David went, whether he was in the heights or the depths, God was there, and David sang about it. He also sang about God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. His life was not an accident. He was the intentional creation of Almighty God. And those are the verses we just read. David understood he was not an accident. He was not an oops. No, God created him wonderfully and fearfully. David knew nothing of the modern science of embryology. David knew nothing of the mysterious process by which a baby grows in the womb. He didn't have the privileges that we have today of modern science and the ability to look in the womb and to watch what happens there. But as John Phillips says, David had the haziest, only had the haziest ideas about these things, but he knew enough to be awed at the process. It's amazing. So David here, while he's astounded that God knew everything going on in his life, he was even more astounded by the fact that this knowledge reached back to when he was not. David talks about, you numbered my days even when they were not. You see, God knows everything about us, and he loves us in spite of that. God is good. God is powerful. God is gracious. And David is overwhelmed by this. Overwhelmed by the fact that God knew him before he drew his first breath. King David, like all of humanity, was God's special creation. He was fearfully and wonderfully formed in the womb. And so as we think about the sanctity of human life, there are three truths that I believe we must hold to firmly. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. We must know that each person was made by God. Each person was made by God. You see, the secular worldview of the pro-abortion movement would lead us to believe that humanity just simply evolved from a single-celled organism somewhere in some slimy ooze. And over billions of years, this process of evolution took place, and more and more, this single-celled organism became more complex and more com complex, and it finally derived to where we are arrived to where we are today. And yet, on the contrary, the Bible instructs us that humanity was created in one day. Not billions upon billions of years, but one day. When a, God said, and there was. God created out of nothing. 
And so Adam and Eve, like the rest of creation, were formed by the creative hand of God. There were no accidents. There were no collision of molecules taking place. There were no mess-ups or mistakes. They were not the result of natural selection. Adam and Eve and you and I are the recipients of divine intervention as God spoke and life came into existence. And so the first and focal point of biblical teaching concerning the creation of humans is this one fact of creation. And this fact is not just found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're going to look at a couple of those verses in just a minute. But if you walk through the scriptures, you're going to see over and over and over again this affirmation of the fact that God is the creator, that God is the one who made humanity and made everything that there is, that he fashions creation with his hands and speaks it into existence. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, verse 13 that we read earlier says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You say, well, I thought biology takes place there. And, and you've got one side coming from the male and the one side coming from the female. You've got the daddy and the mama. And those two parts come together and it creates one cell. And that one cell multiplies and multiplies and it creates a human. That's absolutely what happens biologically. But what David here is cluing us in, in, in on is that God is behind all of that. We are created by God. Each person is made by God. And so Adam and Eve were God's special creations in Eden. And every person since then is his special creation in the womb. What does that say to us? What does that say to us about the value of life? Here's what it says. No one is an accident. Even when mama and daddy aren't trying to have a baby and it happens, and that happens sometimes, right? And it, it's happened recently in some of our families. And I tell them, like, you know what, what, how that happens, right? Right? I kind of... You, you know what that process involves. And yeah, we know that. That's never an accident. God is behind the creation. So we do not rise up by chance from a slimy ooze. We're not here because of natural selection. Darwin got it wrong. Darwin has lied. And people who've been buying the lie for a couple hundred years. Our origin is seated in God. So human life is sanctified because it bears the image of God. Therefore, it has intrinsic value. Each person was made by God. God. Secondly, each person was wonderfully made by God. Look at verse 14. David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That second phrase there can be translated for I am fearfully set apart, sanctified. I, I am, there, there's a sanctity, there, there's a separateness to man's creation. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 helps us to understand what David is saying here. If you know what happens in Genesis chapter 1, it's laying out the six days of creation. What Moses is telling us there is kind of a 30,000-foot viewpoint of creation from day 1 to day 6. And in every case, God is the one who is orchestrating. God is the one who is creating. God is the genesis behind it all. And so as Moses lays out those six days of creation, it culminates with day 6, the apex of creation. And guess who the apex is? Humanity. Adam and Eve. They are the apex. How do we know they're the apex? Because they're the ones made in the image and the likeness of God. That's what Genesis 1.26 tells us. And so the root meaning of the Hebrew word salim, which we translate image, that word means, listen to this, it means to carve. It means to cut off. 
So it's a concrete term that is coupled with another Hebrew term, the term demuth, which translated means likeness. It refers to similarity in the abstract. It refers to something that's in the ideal. And it's evident from the use of these two terms, Salem, that the man was created in the image of God, but to ensure that man does not think that he's God, that man doesn't think that he's nothing more than a clone of God, therefore God himself, this other word, demuth, is put there so that we understand that we have an image of God, but we're also the likeness of God, that we have a divine aspect to us, but we're not divine. Does that make sense? That all goes back to the idea that we are wonderfully made by God. There's vast difference between us and the animal kingdom. So when scientists want to tell us that we're nothing more than an evolved monkey, we're not monkeys. We are the special creation of God. I would take it a step further for us that kind of know our Bibles and that we believe the Bible. We're also not angels. You see, when you die, you don't turn into an angel. Please don't devalue yourself. We're not angels. We'll never be angels. The Bible tells us that angels long to understand what we understand about the gospel because they've never experienced the redemption that we have. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Angels have never experienced that. They long to know what that looks like, what it feels like. We're not the animals. We're not the angels. We are the special creation of God created in the image and the likeness of God. And so to be human, then, is to image and to reflect the glory of the Creator. Let me illustrate this just a little bit further. I've been overseas a good bit, Asia, Europe, uh, Central America, different places like that. I've, I've walked into temples of other religions. I've been to Hindu temples and Jain temples in, in South Asia and things like that. And so anytime you go into a temple, even, even Catholic uh, places of worship, many times they'll have the saints set up. And what happens in those places, at those, in, those, in those places, these worshipers will come in and they will kneel before these icons. They will kneel before these idols that represent little G gods. And they bow down and they worship these little G gods. And so we, you go in there, observe them as a Christian, as a, as a one who follows Jesus Christ. I, I look at the person who's worshiping the monkey god or a god that looks like a monkey, and I think, why in the world would you do that? But they worship this monkey god because it's their god, and the god is displayed in the temple. Have you ever thought, as you read through the scripture, and you see the description of the tabernacle and the temple, why there's no image of God there? Right? You never see. God actually forbids the creation of idols or the creation of an artifact to reflect the glory of God. Why is there no idol or icon of God? It's because it's not needed. You and I are to reflect the glory of God. See, when we look around and we want to understand the glory and the greatness and the grandeur of God, we look and we see God in us. More than that, we see the glory of the gospel in us, how it's redeemed us and changed us. So we are created in the image and the likeness of God, and we are wonderfully created, I would add. Not only are we created in the image and the likeness of God, but we're also created male and female. Sexuality and gender are two areas that are much debated today. But in Genesis 1.21, we read that God created us male and female. And so as we seek to understand and engage people in this culture, we must begin and we must always remain within the lane of Scripture. 
We must always believe the Bible, teach the Bible, hold true to the Bible, and never be swayed one way or the other because God's Word makes it clear that He does not make mistakes. So He creates each person, a male or a female, and every time He creates a person, that person's creation is very good. There are no mistakes. Today we have a world that says, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. There's a oops that took place. And yet God would declare over that person, your creation, not just good, but it's very good. We've been wonderfully created in the image of God. Therefore, there is intrinsic value there. Number three, I've got to hurry. Y'all are taking longer than the first service did. There's a third truth. Each person was made for the glory of God. Again, verse 14. He says, I praise you from fearfully and wonderfully made. This first phrase here points out the reason for our creation. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The reason for your creation is the glory of God. That's why you were created. It's that you would reflect God, that you would image God, that when every other aspect of creation would see you, they would see a picture of the divine. Human life is created in this image, in this likeness, all for the praise of God's great name. Listen to Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. The psalmist says, Oh, come. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are his people, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's the Old Testament. That's the psalmist. Apostle Paul picks up and magnifies this great truth in his letter to the church in Colossae. He speaks of it in other places as well. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so in essence, Paul is saying to each of us that we were made by God and we were made for God. What do you mean by that? We're made for his glory. For his glory. We were made for his glory, and so human life is sanctified, and it has intrinsic value. Every life is precious to God. Now, here's where you might push back on me just a little bit. You say, Pastor, I believe that each person is made by God. I believe each person is wonderfully made by God. I believe each person is made for the glory of God. But, Pastor, what I don't understand is in those situations, those certain situations where there is a person, a, a child that is born out of an atrocity. Like when rape takes place, when you've got a man that, that forces himself on a woman, and it, through that rape, through that violent act, a baby is conceived in her womb and, and, and carried to term, birth, and now we're faced with a decision, is this good, very good, or is this bad? Well, the Bible will tell us it's good, it's very good. Why? Because it's a creation of God. It is a human being. And that person, that being, that boy or that girl has intrinsic value. And that value has nothing to do with how that process or what that process was for that baby to be conceived. The baby has value because that baby is born and created in the image and likeness of God. That's hard for us to swallow when we are in the midst of that. And so today, I can stand up here on this stage in this pulpit, and I can say objectively, this is what we ought to believe. But when you've got a family member or a daughter that has experienced that, I can sympathize and empathize with how that would be a struggle in your heart and within your mind. But here's what I would call us to. What I said earlier, we must always 
run in the lane of Scripture. What does the Word of God say about this? And so if that life is precious and that life has value and that life is good and created by God and wonderfully and fearfully made, then we must honor that life and protect that life. That's why we adhere to and hold to so strongly a pro-life without exception position. So each person was made by God, each person was wonderfully made by God, and each person was made for the glory of God. With this biblical worldview, I believe there are five actions that we as Christians must take, and uh, let's run through these really quick. Number one, we must affirm the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Right now, there are politicians and lobbyists and ethicists and sociologists and psychologists and doctors by all kinds of um, suffixes after their name debating this issue of life and when it begins. The Dobbs decision has reversed Roe and it's pushed the issue back down to the states for the states to decide. And so what's happening, if you're watching your news feeds, what's happening is the states right now are wrestling with this. And the more progressive states are are landing in a position or on a position that's going to legalize abortion all the way up to, uh, all the way through pregnancy and perhaps even beyond birth itself. God forbid that, but I could see that happening. Other states are opting for bans up to a certain point, such as in our state. I believe the governor has laid out a 15-week ban that after 15 weeks, abortions would not be legal. And so while these debates are good for politicians who are seeking to please all of their constituencies, here's where we need to land on this as Christians who believe the Bible. It doesn't matter when that abortion is legalized and made available to happen. It's wrong. Why? Because if life is in the hands of God, and he's the one who knits together in the mother's womb, we must believe that that life takes place at conception. Life doesn't happen when there's a heartbeat. Life doesn't happen when there's the ability to feel pain. Life doesn't happen at a certain gestational period other than that that, throughout that pregnancy. No, we must believe that life takes place at conception, and therefore we must protect it all the way through natural death. That means we're never going to stand for euthanasia. That means we're going to stand against anything and everything that would harm life in this world. We must not be about those who seek to please others, but we must be those who seek to please one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and affirm his word. Secondly, we must recognize the moral atrocities that devalue human life. So abortion is obviously not the only issue That's at war when it comes to the sanctity of human life. There are all kinds of moral atrocities that devalue life. So we dare not turn a blind eye to things like human trafficking or the sexualization of children or the rampant and accessible pornography that's all throughout our culture or the intentional destruction of the nuclear family or the neglection of the poor. And those are just a few things that we can lay out. We must be a people who recognize the moral atrocities that devalue human life and work against them. Thirdly, Pray for God to turn back the tides of secularism. See, the challenges before us are immense, and they are beyond our ability to enact change. And for that reason, we must first and foremost pray. We must pray, ask, seek God's face. 
We must pray for God to intervene. We must pray for God to change hearts. We must pray for God to shed his mercy on a nation that has lost its moral compass. And today we rejoice, at least I do, that that Roe versus Wade has been canceled, that that decision has been kicked down to the states, that that's only one battle. But how did it happen? Not just so, because one president got enough court members on the Supreme Court to reverse it. It happened because God's people have been praying for 40 years for it. We must pray for God to move against this secularization. We must pray for him to give us as his people courage and conviction and compassion. We must also pray for God's spirit to bring a spiritual awakening throughout the land. Because here's what we understand. Our hope can never be in legislation. But our hope must always be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what transforms lives. Fourthly, we must equip ourselves with God's word to teach the truth about the sanctity of life. This cultural drift towards secularism is carrying too many Christians and far too many churches down its path. And so we must swim against that current. How do we do that? We preach the word of God. We proclaim the word of God. We learn what the word of God says about the glory of humanity that's enshrined within God's creative order. So we must engage in this debate and take back the narrative for God's glory and the good of other persons who are created in the image of God. A book, I didn't mention this last service, but... A book that we as a staff are going through right now is called The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church by Dr. Albert Moeller. I would encourage you to read a book like this, this book in particular. It'll help you to think through what's been happening in current news, in current generations, or late generations here, the last generations here, to bring us to where we are today as a culture and looking at it through the lens and the grid of Scripture and the Gospel we got to equip ourselves. we got to be able to enter this narrative. we got to be able to join in the debate and begin to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ and a biblical understanding. Lastly, we must champion adoption and foster care. If all of life is sacred, then we as believers must champion these two, two issues. And we must be willing to step in to care for the children who would have otherwise been aborted. Thankfully, what we're seeing statistically is that abortions are going down. A lot of that is because there's not as much access to abortions these days, thankfully. We don't know if that trend's going to continue, but what we're seeing is a good thing. And so what that means is more babies are going to be born into this world. They're going to be born into families or born into single moms who don't want them. And so that's an atrocity in and of itself. So what should we do? How do we step in as the church? What do we do there to stand for life and value life? We have to be ready to champion these two issues so that we can be there for the babies who are being born into homes that don't want them. How do we do that? Adoption and foster care. We do it by going to those who have no home and we become the home for them. Going to them who have no family and we become the family for them. Who better to do this than those who understand we've been made by God and for God, that we image and reflect the glory of God and the love of God, and we can love these kids to Jesus Christ. Amen? You've got a quiet bunch these days. How do we do this? How do we stand against abortion? And how do we advocate for kids who are not wanted? Here's what we need to do. We need to stand with great organizations such as the Pregnancy Resource Center of Metro Richmond. 
an organization that we've supported as a church for years, an organization that comes alongside women and men who are faced with an unplanned and many times an unwanted pregnancy so that life-affirming decisions and choices can be made that's going to protect that unborn baby. We need to stand with organizations like March for Life who brings awareness locally as well as nationally. They had a national march this past Friday. They provide alternatives that prevent infant... or they provide alternatives for abortion there, another option there. <clears throat> we also need to stand with National Safe Haven Alliance, which is an organization providing alternatives that prevent infant abandonment. In states around the country, they have this option or these boxes that a, a, a person, a mom, can bring an unwanted baby to and leave that baby there, and there's no strings attached whatsoever. They're not going to be punished. They're not going to be criminalized. They're just going to be able to offer their baby so that someone can take that baby and value that baby and provide a home for that baby. Leah Kipley is the assistant director of this organization. I'm sure she would love to share more with you if you're interested in that. But we want to support organizations such as these. We also want to stand with foster care organizations like Hope Tree Family Services here in the metro area who provide opportunities for children to be placed in a loving and caring family. I mean, think this morning, as we think about championing adoption and foster care, could it be that the Lord would today call out from our church families that would say, we will be an adopting family. We will be a foster care family. It's not a too tall of an order to think about this morning. My prayer this morning is that God would do just that, that he would raise up families to champion this cause. But here's another idea that I heard the other day from a pastor. You don't just have to say, i got to do one of these two things. Because here's what, I look around the room, some of you are beyond the years that you probably want to foster a kid or adopt a kid, right? I put myself in that category. Like, I'm knocking on the door of 50. I don't know that I want a newborn in my house. I don't have that much energy. So what else do you do? Well, what about getting certified so that you can come alongside foster care families and provide an opportunity for them to go out and have a date night, have an opportunity to go away for the weekend, give them some rest, give them a break, but you've got the certification that you can step into that home legally and from the state standpoint and, and be a buffer zone so that that fostering family can continue to love those kids by getting away from them, <laughs> which is true of all kids, Amen. Mine included. That's just an easy, tangible way to champion this cause for the greater glory of God. And listen to me, the good of humanity. Human life is valuable. Human life is intrinsically valuable. And so how will we champion adoption? How will we champion foster care? How will we champion the cause of life in general? Our biblical worldview ought to drive our convictions and our actions on this issue. What do you believe about the Bible? You say, Pastor, I believe that life is precious. I, I believe that life is, is, is God-ordained. You know, each human being images and reflects the glory of God. I believe all those things. I stand against abortion. I stand for life. I stand against the culture of death. That's good to say that, but what actions are behind that conviction? I'm not telling you to go and march in the streets. I'm not telling you to go and protest, hang, carry around a bunch of signs. I'm not telling you to do any of those things. If that's what you want to do, go do that. March for Life is all about bringing awareness through those things. But they do more than that. I'm not telling you you have to go and adopt. I'm not telling you you have to go foster. Here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Father, what in my heart are you speaking about this issue? How can I value life and work to preserve life? What do I need to do?
Maybe it's you being on the phone and talking to legislators. I said earlier, we, our hope is not in legislation, but it doesn't mean legislation is not a part of the equation. God works through the government in many ways, right? And, and so here's what I've learned. I, I'm, in, I'm in this world on a really small, low level, and here's what I've come to understand in two and a half years. Most of the time, the people who scream the loudest are the ones that would say this right here is a flat lie and deny everything in it. And so I'm only hearing from the progressives. I'm not hearing from those who actually believe the word of God. And so your legislators probably need to hear that other side so that they can hear what truth is. And maybe that will sway them in a certain direction. We need to get engaged. We need to be engaged. We need to stand for life. We need to stand against death. We need to hold on to the truth. Amen? Amen. Would you stand to your feet? This morning we are talking about life, and my prayer is is that in this room and in the first service, our church in general, that God would call to raise up people who would say, I'll be an adopting family, I'll be a fostering family, I'll be someone who comes along with foster families, I'll be a person engaged in some of these ministries and organizations you mentioned, Pastor, I'll do that. That's my prayer this morning. We need to be engaged. But as we talk about the value of human life, the reason Jesus went to a cross is because you mean something to him. And in this room, you probably, there's probably some people who need to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so this morning, if you're, that's you, if you say, Pastor, I need a relationship with Jesus. I've never confessed my sin. I've never turned to him. I've never ran to him. He's never been my Lord and Savior. Today, I would encourage you to consider that. And as we respond this morning through song, I would encourage you to come forward. I'd love to be able to pray with you, pass you off to someone that can walk through the gospel with you this morning and tell you how much God loves you and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we just this morning thank you that you love us. God, we know we're sinners. We know we mess up. We know that we are a mess 99% of the time. But when we see the grace and the goodness and the mercy that you bestow upon us, that you want to lavish on us, Lord, it is overwhelming. We just don't understand it. So we just thank you. Father, we thank you that you are God of life, not a God of death. And we pray for our culture, the people in our nation, that we would continue to push back against the darkness, that we would say no and reject the philosophies that would advocate for death. Help us as Christians to be convictional and compassionate and, and have courage in our lives to do just that. Lord, maybe. Some of these families need to adopt or foster or help those who are doing it. I know we have some foster families in our church, and I see the struggle that they have at times, and it's understandable. So God, may you raise up families in our church that can help these families. Lord, also in this room, there may be those who need a relationship with Jesus, and today they are the orphan who's walking at a guilty distance, and today you're calling them to yourself into sonship and daughtership. You want to adopt them into your family. How does that happen? It happens through confession of sin, repentance, and faith. God, may you give that to them this morning. We love you. We thank you for loving us. And now as we respond, may we do so faithfully and obediently, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.